The Broad Place. Today I introduce you to Jeff Cooper. Jeff Cooper is, for me, a perfect example of someone who explores creativity and consciousness on every level. So not only is Jeff a meditation teacher, but he's also an actor. You might know him from The Walking Dead, Sons of Anarchy, Shameless, The New Girl, Law and Order, alongside many, many films. And he's also a really beautiful photographer and he's a writer. So he really applies himself in every facet of his life to exploring creativity and consciousness. And I know you're going to really love this talk with him. Enjoy. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today on the High Grade Living podcast. There's so much that I'd love to chat with you about, but let's start off with this concept of high grade living, because I know it's something that you and I have explored together over the years. And I think usually people's first um, conclusion when they hear the term is like, oh, it feels elite, or it feels like I've got to chase something. Whereas for me, the concept of high grade living is actually the pursuit of of a life in alignment with our higher selves. And a lot of the time that actually means letting go of the stuff that's blocking us from that. And in the West, usually we have an acquisition strategy. It's that we need to acquire a better version of ourselves as opposed to actually sink into the truth of ourselves, the things that are already available to us. So can you give me your perspective on this? Or or just that. Um, (laughs) You know... We, as humans, start out with the feeling of lack. And it's because, according to the spiritual truths, it's because we're not in touch with the truth of our nature. But because we're not taught to look at the truth of our nature, we're taught to feel the way it feels to be in this body and to identify as this body and these thoughts and these feelings, we end up seeing that lack in terms of what we have or don't have, what we've acquired or haven't acquired, whether someone loves us or not, whether we're getting approval of our parents or not. Uh, and, And we consistently try to fill that apparent lack with things that cannot, by definition, fill it. So uh, high-grade living is about such a huge subject. But if we do the work to get in touch with the spirit of what we are, we will begin to feel fulfillment within and then we can get about the business of actually living and enjoying it, which is we're meant to be useful here. We're meant to be expressions. We're meant to be expressive. We are meant to be creators as above, so below. We are living in creation. We are the creators. We are the microcosm of the whole and the whole is creating all the time. So I feel best when I'm creating. If I'm creating, it's about giving. It's not about getting. So the spiritual work is absolutely essential for me to turn that paradigm on its head. The one that we usually live in, which is I need a new car. I need a new girlfriend. I need, you know, to lose weight. I need more money. Yeah. Can you, can you share with um, me what your definition then is of ego as well? Because obviously that's one of the big blocks too, being in alignment with our higher selves. Ego is, you know, it's often used in a pejorative sense, but 
ego really is just it's the interface of me with my animal nature my animal human nature you know it's a the difference between me and my labradoodle bud powell is uh well, he's got a lot more energy than I do. But the basic difference is, you know, he's alive, I'm alive. I know it, he doesn't. And how do I know it? I, I, I have this prefront, prefrontal cortex that tells me stories about where I am and how I'm doing and what I'm doing and what it means. He doesn't have those stories. He's just like, that guy's standing up, we're going for a walk. Oh boy, you know, and uh, it, uh, another walk now? No, no, I'm just going to the bathroom, bud. You know, and, but he's like, okay, what, you know, he's looking at the world and interacting with it. I'm looking at the world through this interface. And when I don't know the functions properly, I end up interacting with my ego. And I end up trying to figure out the world through this interface. And I end up mistaking that interface for the truth of what I am, which means that I end up identifying with my thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The ego is the thing that makes sense of the way it feels to be me in space, in my senses, in uh, my emotional um, flow of life. It tells me a story about, am I better than or less than? Am I uh, close enough or uh, too far away? Am I uh, too old, too young? You know, all these different comparative relative world things. And it tells me how I'm doing. And it tells me if I'm moving in the direction of survival or not. It's really the survival mechanism with a set of stories uh, to tell me why and what it's it's uh that may sound vague but it that's that's the way i see it it's just you know i i have a what ego used to mean to me was um i do something really well and i feel good about it i do something really poorly i feel bad about it and uh once we get really involved in identifying with that thing that we are that is beyond the ego transcendent of the ego then the ego becomes the thing I start, I mistake myself as. And it's telling me um, how I'm doing. And, and how I'm doing is not that the ego can't tell me how I'm really doing because it's basing everything on history and speculation. It's like, you know, when you teach someone meditation, one of the most fascinating things to me is you teach someone meditation. And most of the time they have their first meditation, they go, oh my God, I always thought it could be like that. That's, thank you. And then they have a second meditation. Well, it wasn't quite as good as it was when I was with you. And then by the third or fourth meditation, they're like, I don't know, it's not working. What do you mean it's not working? Well, it's not like it was. Well, of course it's not like it was. You, that, was the, that was you diving in. Now you're learning how to swim. You're not going to dive in for the first time again, ever. So it's never going to feel like that again. Mm. But it's an infinite field. There's a lot of different ways to feel in it. So... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this, um, I interviewed who you would love, um, Amanda Talbot, the other day, and she was explaining that you know she had this like huge aha moment. She's 
she'd been meditating for a couple of years and then she read this book and it described that you're not the voice in your head. And she said it was, you know, the way she described it was sort of like being clanged over the head at this moment of like she couldn't unsee it after she'd seen it. And then she became so unbelievably aware of the voice in her head. And then also what was the source of this voice and where was it coming from? And, and then sort of started to undo um, or unpick what the ego was and, and how it was driving her. Do you remember when you first sort of started to encounter this philosophy or this idea that, hang on a minute, just because this voice in my head tells me something doesn't mean it's reality? Well, uh, at first, there was, a, hmm, there was a book by Paul Williams. What the hell was it called? It was uh, written, oh, Das Energy. Um, it was one of the first like woo-woo books in the seventies. <laughs> and, uh, that started telling me, you know, that, you know, sort of like, uh, a more poetic version of be here now. Um, and it had concepts like that. You really are the energy of the universe. You're not those thoughts. And I was like, but the voices in my head were so, so, so very loud. It didn't matter if I was them or not. They had control of me. Um, and I was just trying to get them to quiet down a little bit. And I had the idea if I could get the voices to quiet down, I could begin to feel okay to be here. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't, I still didn't know at all that they weren't me. So it wasn't until I learned, you know, uh, the transcending technique that I, that I practice and that I teach that I was able to begin to have the experience of, Oh, Oh, there's something that I am that is completely other than that. There was another book, um, The Philosophy of Consciousness Without an Object by Franklin Merrill Wolf, who was an American who had an enlightenment experience in the 30s um, and then wrote about it. it. You know, the philosophy of consciousness without an object. So the idea of being awake and aware, but not in reference to anything in the relative world. Mm. That is the same thing because the thoughts are about relative world referring referral. Um, so I, they were like, they were like candles in the darkness, but they weren't, uh, they didn't make any sense to me until I could have it as an experience. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the, I'd love to touch on obviously meditation with you because you've been meditating since 1975 and teaching for 13 years. Um, one of the challenges, the first chapter in the book is, in the high-grade living book, is diving into meditation. And one of the big challenges I had um, when working with the publisher on this was that the technique that you and I teach can't be taught in a book. And, I, you know, our journeys were quite similar in that we tried a lot of different types of meditation until we settled into a, a different type of practice. Um, and it is this challenge, isn't it, with meditation that it is, it, you need to have an experience of it as opposed to an intellectual understanding of it. Can, can you mm -hmm. share with us what your experience from, you know, 35 years ago to now has been? 45. 45, cool. Do the math. It <laughs> just says I'm really old. <laughs> you know, it's... First of all, if we look at, like, uh, you know, why we're here, 
I really, I really buy into this idea that uh, what the universe is doing is what I'm doing. And the more I can align myself with what the universe is doing, the better my life will go and the better I'll feel about it. So according to the Veda, as I understand it, um, according to the teachings of the ancients, as it were, um, what's going on here is consciousness exploring itself, getting to know itself, uplifting itself, loving itself, connecting with itself, becoming the oneness that it actually is. Another way of saying that is, um, the, you know, the ancients uh, used the term Brahman as the Sanskrit word for totality. That word Brahman doesn't mean a god. It's, it's, it means totality. It means everything of the relative world and everything of the transcendent world all together. And it comes from a root, br, which means to expand. So what consciousness always is doing is expanding itself. So that means that the more I can be in the place of expanding myself, the more I will be aligned with what consciousness is doing. Now, when I started looking for meditation, I wasn't looking to expand myself. I was looking to fix myself. I, was, I felt broken. I felt in agony and suffering all the time. I felt unworthy of being alive. Um, and I was just looking for some relief that, <laughs> that, that wasn't chemical in nature. Um, and, uh, and the truth is that I felt so screwed up that there was not enough time in the universe to fix all the parts of me that were broken. But if there was a central experience of me and I could get in touch with that, it might magically fix all those broken bits. That's really the way I was looking at it. And so then I started, you know, I, there was a, I was in Missoula, Montana, and there was a, a book called, a bookstore uh, slash co-op grocery called Freddy's Feed and Read. Um, and awesome. Freddy was this socialist uh, anarchist, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and most of the books there were about feminism and socialism and anarchism. And off in the corner, there was some little book about meditation. And I picked it up and it said, go sit in a dark room with a candle, stare at the candle, then close your eyes and you see a light inside your head. That's meditation. So I tried that. You know, it was, uh, it was interesting and disappointing. <laughs> and that kind of described my meditation uh, practice for the next, you know, probably 20 years. Interesting and disappointing. Mm. You know, and I tried all sorts of different things and... Um, the greatest teachers was uh, a teacher by the name of Sri Aurobindo, who left the body, as they say, in 1950. So clearly I never met him. But he talked about consciousness in a way that made sense to me because it was all intellectual. And that's what I was identified as. But he didn't offer any practices. You were supposed to, I don't know, close your eyes and do what? Make your mind go quiet. <laughs> I was in India in 1994 with my, uh, this was my, my second wife. And she had introduced me to the work of Sri Aurobindo. And we went to visit her. Uh, she had a teacher in uh, Auroville, 
after Aurobindo in South India. And we were there on a, a, over a Christmas and Kelly, my wife, and myself, and Mikael, and his friend, uh, Mary Premala, who was this uh, uh, English hippie who lived in South India um, all her life and translated uh, for these Brahmins um, from into French and uh, out of Sanskrit and all these different things. And we went and sat with this scholar of this massive uh, spiritual poem, Savitri, by Sri Aurobindo. It's over a thousand pages long, a, a poem to the Holy Mother. And we sat and read it for two hours sitting on these grass mats on a concrete floor. And now let's meditate. So we sat there for another, I don't know, 45 minutes, like on this concrete floor with my eyes closed. And every once in a while I would peek and see what was going on. And everyone was like meditating. <laughs> and we get out and it's this gorgeous you know, just post-Christmas evening in Pondicherry, this beautiful seaside village. And we're walking down the street, absolutely quiet. It was before India got really, you know. Um, and uh, and they were talking about their experience. Oh, my God, that was so amazing. Oh, just, oh, this and that. And, this. and finally, someone said, how, someone said, how about you, Jeff? What was that like for you? I said, oh. <clears throat> I, I don't know, my my ankles really, really hurt. <laughs> Is that all? I said, well, my knees, my knees hurt too, you know. And that was it, because it was like, when I closed my eyes, it felt like hell. It was mm-hmm. just the voices got louder. They didn't quiet down. And every thought I had to quiet the voices down just made them louder. And then, then the voice of the ego kicks in, the superego which mine was really strong at that time, which was, you suck, you should die, you, you don't get to meditate, You're, anyone else can, but you, you know, all that, so. And probably affirmed with everyone else after the meditation talking about their glorious experiences. <laughs> Just separate, different, apart from, and it was for someone else, not for me, you know, mm. because clearly when I closed my eyes, it just got worse. So this meditation thing must not be for me. What what changed then from meditation? Because, I mean, obviously, I know you do. I hear this all the time where people say, oh, you know, I've tried to meditate and I can't. Um, and my heart, there's a little part of my heart that breaks for them because, you know, sitting still with your eyes closed is very different from meditating correctly. Yeah. Um, what what shifted for you? Like what, what for, oh, actually, first of all, can I ask, what kept you going? I was asked this the other day. So you meditated sort of, you know, I would say it wouldn't say dismally, but it's a word close to that for a decade. And yet you kept at it. And they said, what kept you at it? And I, I couldn't actually put my finger on it. It's like there was something in me that kept pulling me back towards this thing that wasn't quite clicking yet. I knew in my heart of hearts there was something there. What was the thing that kept you going for so long? Well, see, I, I think this is the thing. It's the truth of what I am is not the uh, experience that I generally have of myself before I learn to meditate. The experience I have of myself before I learn to meditate is I am these thoughts, I am these feelings, I am these bodily sensations, I am these definitions that I've made of myself based upon the world around me and the way I think they're thinking about me. And something is terribly wrong, something is missing. Well, that's something that is missing is the thing that one finds in meditation. And 
it's it it it's never going to go away. It's going to keep saying, "Hey, hey." Yeah, tap tap tap. <laughs> Wrong direction. Look inside. Oh, but when I look inside, all I see are thoughts. Oh my god! Oh my god! Give me a joint. You know, give me a drink. Give me a cigarette. Oh, there's a girl. You know, just anything to take away the feelings and that. But you, you know, so you've got to be taught. You've got to be taught that looking inside is not thinking. Mm. Looking inside is something else. Well, what is that? Well, you know, come learn meditation. Yeah. It's ridiculously simple and it's impossible to describe, you know, to uh, someone in a book or even one-on-one. -on -one. You can tell them that it's simple. You can tell them what the uh, effect of it is. Uh, you can tell them that even they can do it, even when they don't think they can. But until you walk them through a meditation step by step by step, they're not going to know what the hell you're talking about. It's like, try to describe a color to a blind person. Mm. Yeah. You can say a lot of stuff about it, but they're not going to get it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I discuss in the book as well is the importance of finding a teacher. Um, I think it's the critical thing is to find a teacher. What would you recommend if people were looking for a teacher to teach them to meditate? What would you recommend as some of the qualities um, that you would be looking for in a teacher or that you'd recommend seeking out? Because obviously there's a plethora of meditation. Mm -hmm. Well, let's first start. There's a million different types of meditation techniques right now. It seems like mm -hmm. every day a new one is invented. Um, but there's also a, a huge gamut of teachers teaching in different ways. What do you think is important? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, I, first of all, I would say uh, it your seeking of a teacher must involve some sense of play and freedom and allowing oneself to be guided and listen to the voice inside you that says, mm, no, I don't think so. Um, that said, you know, when I learned to meditate, I, you know, my, uh, a friend called my wife and said, I went to see this guy he gave me this word and showed me how to use it. And it, it, I, it made me happy. And so Adele said, come on, let's go see this guy. He gives out words and they make you happy. And it's like, I, I had already been through so many different types of meditation. I was just like, yeah, right. Well, let me know how that goes for you. You know, she said, no, 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 no come on. <clears throat> so we went to the first, the first <laughs> introductory talk. I looked around at the people. I didn't like them. I didn't like, they looked like not my kind of people. So I said, I'm leaving. I'll, I'll pick you up at the end. She said, no, I'll go with you. And so we left before he even came out and talked. And the friend called back, said, so what'd you think? And my wife told her that the story. And then she said, geez, he's coming back again, you know, next month. And so we went to see him. And this time I listened to him talk. And, you know, we were there with another couple and the, uh, one of the other members of the other couple heckled him <laughs> while he was talking. Um, and, uh, and I, we left and I wasn't going to learn. And my friend said, Oh, call this number. So I called the number and it was this guy. And so it was the guy I just heard give this intro talk. And I was like, you know, why should I trust you? You're asking for money. 
And he says, don't trust me. You can't trust me. Trust your experience. How did it feel when I was talking to you? Did it feel like this might be real? Did it feel like this might be possible? I said, yeah, but uh, he says, well, what time do you want to come in tomorrow? <laughs> you know, so I went in and I had this experience the first time out. It was like, oh, oh, that's what I've been wanting. There's an innate sense inside us that knows that it's not supposed to be the way it is for most of us, which is anxiety ridden, uh, you know, trying desperately to figure it out before anyone notices we don't know how, what we're doing. And, you know, trying to, like, looking around and comparing the way it feels to be me to the way it looks to be you. Mm. Comparing my insides to your outsides. Now, inside, you might feel every bit as bad as I do, but you have a, a better cover. Or you have nicer clothes. Or, or you have a, you've learned how to smile, you know, or any of those sorts of things. Um, so... And I saw many different people before that. And there are people who are teaching what they call meditation that, you know, it might be meditation, but it wasn't helpful to me. Mm. You know, I, I did Vipassana for years and, you know, I learned how to sit and be uncomfortable. It, it was that valuable, I suppose, but it wasn't the meditation that I needed to have. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, ask questions, really listen. Listen with your heart, not with your cynical, uh, not with the cynical buddy you have in your head. You know, listen with your heart. And if someone is just trying to uh, make money or is surrounded by a lot of young women um, uh, or, You know, here's the, here's the, one of the big problems is that, you know, meditation has become commodified because we're, we're in the West. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a capitalist system. Mm. And I've taught people meditation without charging them and they haven't valued the practice. So that's, you, you can see it's, you've got to charge for it and you've got to charge because you're taking up your time. You're using your time and, you know, you have to, your time has to be paid for. I was... As you know, uh, uh, I was uh, in India with Sri M um, and did the Walk of Hope with him for a month. And then I was, he was going to teach me a, a yoga practice uh, technique in, in Varanasi. And I was supposed to meet him in this, this secret temple at 5.30 in the morning one day. And, um, and so I asked his assistant or his, his sergeant at arms, I said, so... Um, what is uh, what what's what's my uh, contribution here? What should I? What, what would Sir like me to give? And he said, "Well, I asked him that. He said, uh, one rupee and one flower." I said, "I'm sorry." He said, "A rupee and a flower. Well, a rupee is worth what? Two cents? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> you know, and and a flower. You know, and." And people take care of spiritual teachers there. They don't have to, you know, ask for money for the practices. And so there's a, but even in that system, you know, there's, you know, we, we know, all know the stories of the people who get led astray, the teachers who get led astray, who start taking themselves seriously and, and uh, you know, using their powers to get laid rather than to spread consciousness and love. And, uh, you know, it, the, the fact is, is that, 
here's oh here's what I want to say about teachers. Don't expect them to be perfect. But don't but also don't let yourself be taken advantage of, you know. They're humans. And as long as listen, Christ on the cross at the very end said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't able to hold it together all the way to the end. He was completely engulfed in his humanness toward the end. If Jesus can't make it to the end without being human, what chance do I have? You know. <laughs> so any teacher you have, if you're looking for them to be perfect, that ain't it. Look for, ask them if they've got a technique. Do you have a technique that will allow me to experience something other than my mundane relative world reality? Do you have a technique that will allow me to experience the truth of what I am? Do you have a, or, or do I have to sit in your presence in order to feel that? Because that can happen too. And then that person can't, you know, there's a guy, Muji, absolutely enlightened. You sit in his presence, you feel it. You feel the waves coming off of him. You feel the aura. You feel the, the event horizon of consciousness. You walk away and it's like, it's over there with Muji. Mm. You didn't take any of it with you. And he doesn't say, and do this while you're away and you'll feel the same thing yourself. And if a teacher can't give you that, then uh, what are you getting? Yeah. The, he is no teacher who does not look to make the student uh, uh, self... Um, sufficient? Uh, Self-sufficient. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, can I ask in regards to you as a teacher, um, you know, you and I have moved in lots of different uh, meditation circles over the years and seen the best of and the worst of what, what the sort of spiritual communities can offer. What are the systems that you keep in place to keep yourself in check as a teacher? Because obviously you've got, you know, all these students from all over the world, they come and seek your teachings. What, what do you do to make sure that you're always operating from integrity? As best as you can. <laughs> you do operate in integrity, Jeff. How do you do that? <laughs> um, uh, uh, back to the model of, and, and I, I, I want to say this absolutely without grandiosity, because that's not it at all. But it's about giving. Mm. If I'm teaching you in order to get something from you, then you got the wrong teacher. And I'm in the wrong business. I left to my own device. <laughs> left to my own devices. I don't want to teach anybody anything ever. I don't want to do it, and I, I'm I don't do it to make a living, you know, because it's not enough money to make a living. And and really, if you count the number of you know, if you if you break it down to how much you're getting per hour for being a teacher, it's a pittance. I mean, you're not you know. I have two, you know, Zoom meditations a week since COVID-19 started. I'm not getting money for that. I, it's my job. I know something that other people need to know. I see things the way that other people, I can help other people see them that way. It, if I'm not doing that, then, uh, then, I'm, then, then I'm out of integrity. I'm doing, and not, they can find it elsewhere. I'm not the only guy with it, but I went from darkness and despair to um to feeling okay in my body i know how to move from there to here 
and I have this technique that I can that I can offer as well. And you know, I've got to make myself available to offer that to people. And um, if I'm looking to, you know, it's there have been I think twice in my teaching career that uh, I one time I rushed a teaching. I was like, anything else? Yeah, uh, you know, I had something I wanted to do. And I, I rushed the teaching and the guy knew it. And it was just awful. I was never able to make it up to him. But that happened one time and I was like, I will never do that again. Another time, I just, there was a woman and I just, there was something about her that it just, you know, it, it, it hit my pheromones. And I was just like, oh, clearly we're meant to be together. I didn't say this, but that's what I was feeling. And it just, it got really creepy really fast. And I just like, I don't ever want to have that feeling again. Mm -hmm. So I just, it just, I don't go there. Yeah. I just don't go there. Those are two times when, I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast. (laughs) But, um, But, you know, those were two times when my humanness just came up like a monster and took over. And I just, I watched it and went, oh, that, this is not, this is not it. Mm. So again, if, uh, in order for me to be clean, I've got to be doing the work to be clean inside. Yeah. I've got to be finding that place of fulfillment in me. So I don't need anything from you. Mm. Then I can sit with you without trying to get anything from you. Yeah. Why why do you think as humans, we're so, we fall into the process of, uh, or the practice of like putting someone on a pedestal or being desperate to sort of be discipled or, um, you know, an unwillingness to particularly, you know, you see it so much in yoga, meditation, spiritual communities, um, and, and a really well-intentioned teacher that can start out with such a big heart and, um, all the right intentions can sort of fall prey to, um, this process and this, um, this, un- I'll call it an unraveling. I, Tanjali, I love it in the, um, I read this, uh, it was a, a dissertation on the um, yoga sutras and it was that the reason that Patanjali taught behind a screen was not just to shield himself um, from the students and not just to hide himself from the students but also to shield himself from the projections of the students and it obviously works two ways there's the students projections and then there's the teacher then sort of feeding this machine why do you think in particularly it absolutely happens in the east but particularly in the west we're so subject to this do you know what I'm talking about yeah, oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's uh and, and you know they in therapy they call this counter transference. Mm-hmm. You know, you you go in and and the therapist is suddenly your mother, and you know, or your father. And then uh, if the the therapist has to work diligently not to go into you know reaction and response to that, because there are emotional needs that are you know that we have that uh, get wrapped up in these in these different relationships and relatings there's a this is a little it may sound a little bit off topic but you know uh, my day job I'm an actor and they have these uh uh autograph shows and I was uh I was at an autograph show with uh, I was on the show called uh, uh Sons of Anarchy and I was at an autograph show with uh, this other actor um from the show a couple other actors and, and uh I was, we were sitting in the green room waiting to go out and, and this guy said to me, he says, you know, Jeff, they don't come to see us 
they come to be seen by us. And I just, my head just went, you know, because they have projected something on this person that Mm. they're, they have a quality that I don't have. Then if that person with that quality recognizes me, that raises me up. That brings me uh, a sense of, 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 uh, of value. So what they're projecting onto is actually the character that they see you playing in the TV series. It's not even actually you. That's, that's part of it. The other part of it, though, is, uh, you know, when I was back in Montana, I never thought of being an actor because I never thought that actors were people. I didn't think that it was something I could actually be. I didn't think it was something I could do. It never even occurred to me, let alone what I want to do that or let alone would I be any good at that. And it's like we don't have royalty in this in this culture, so performers become the royalty, and you know they're there for us to project things on. So even as a performer, you're projected on as something other. I'll just call it other, and uh, you know to the extent that uh, your character is in the direction of uh, worthy of. Uh, love or adoration, and you have that sense of other, then yeah, the, the, there's a, an idea of that reflecting somehow well on you. Mm. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's a story that I believe it was Robert Thurman, who was, uh, you know, is one of the Dalai Lama's oldest uh, Western friends and uh, confidants and, and associates. And he's, he's a, a the chair of uh, you know Eastern Studies at uh, Columbia University, uh, I believe, um, and I believe it was him that was talking to Dalai Lama early on and saying, "So in the West, there's uh, there's really a there's a problem of low self esteem," and and the Dalai Lama was like, "I'm sorry, what?" <laughs> says, well, you know, we, there's you know people have low self esteem. He says, "I I am. What are you talking? What is that?" And, you know, so when you think about it, you know, low self-esteem, what does that mean? That means I'm looking at myself and seeing that I come up short. Now, how can I look at myself? The eye will never see the eye, the, the eyeball. You can never see the eyeball with the eyeball. It can't happen. So you can never see yourself with the self. What you can see, you have, you project outside of yourself some idea of judgment, some idea of authority, then look back at yourself and see how you're doing. And of course, you always come up short. If you're centered in the self rather than self-centered, there is no looking back at yourself. There's only looking outward. And from there, it's not my business how I'm doing. It's not my business if I'm esteemable or not. Do something esteemable, then then you'll move in the direction of being esteemable. But it's 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 not something to get to. It's something to experience. So I think it's it's that whole system of when you don't have the capacity to get in touch with that underlying truth of what you are, you're left to try to make sense of the way it feels to be you in a system of judgment and relative world, how am I doing? Which means constant, go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to say, and, and, a, and a very frail system of trying to receive affirmation and confirmation of that projection from other people that are undertaking the exact same experience, the same fragile experience. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, when you really think about it, if, if I'm stuck in approval seeking and, I, you know, we've all fallen into it and some of us have spent lots of time in it. But, you know, if you're in approval seeking, someone walks in the room and if they have a scowl on your face, then you, you make up in your own mind what you think is happening in their mind and then judge yourself from that. It's so far removed from any reality. They might have just eaten a bad persimmon. You know, they're just like, oh, and they look at you and you think, oh, they're scowling at me. You know, it has nothing. They don't even notice me because they're all wrapped up in their own stuff. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, so meditate. Oh. Yeah, care of everything. It it truly does. Can I? I know um, you've got a what I would call a holistic system to be in alignment with your higher self. So, and there's been you know refined over the years. So, exercise, getting the right kind of rest, um, ensuring that your nervous system is you know as clean as it possibly can be, psychology, um, you know, and then this constant thirst for learning and self-development and education, but also having other, like, teachers that you can also, you know, the buck didn't stop with you is what I found. So mm. it wasn't like you went, okay, well, now I'm a teacher. That's me cooked. Guess I best be enlightened now. And you've always referenced and been curious enough to have those conversations with other teachers that you learn from and so forth. So on mentors, is there anything that I've missed out on there that you think, like for anyone listening that's sort of, because I think one of the traps is where I'm going with this. One of the traps is that meditation is a silver bullet. And if you just meditate, then you don't need anything else. You don't need therapy. You don't need to be accountable. Um, as long as you can tick the box, do your, you know, 20 minutes twice a day, you're cooked. Um, even though I think meditation obviously is such a fundamental part of actively evolving, how important do you think all the other bits are, is my first part A, and part B, have I missed anything off that, off that list of things that you do to ensure that you're in? Well, meditation... <laughs> Um, meditation makes the system malleable. It makes it, it opens it to being uh, changed. Um, and so it's, it's like the ante into the game poker metaphor. Um, you know, you, that's just, that just gets you into the game. Then what is the game? The game is about finding a, a, uh, an experience of life and joy and flow uh, in as much of your experience as you can. And to the extent that you're not able to find that, then you, you, you know, you ask yourself, what is, what is, not flowing what is keeping me back and it, it's like it's as simple as this the ego says no and spirit says yes mm. so where are the no's in my system and you know what i've been doing lately is <clears throat> is twofold on the one hand um as i told you i've been writing my story so i'm seeing where i came from and how i got to where i got and and then what needed to be done from that in, in a way that I've never looked at it before. And, uh, and I've been involved in a, in, um, 
uh, somatic trauma recovery therapy, uh, which is, you know, I didn't do therapy for years because uh, the idea with meditation is if you have a good practice, you'll transcend this whole system and then the system will straighten itself out. It, it doesn't work that way. To a certain extent, it does. To a great extent, it does. Let's say 75% of what was wrong with me ceased being a problem when I started meditating properly. But then there's that 25% that is really resistant to change because it was put in there at a pre-verbal level and at the, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the experience of uh, survival, the survival mechanism. And it doesn't just let go because I think it should. So then there is the, you know, there is the need to shine the light on those places and allow those places to come along, you know, for the right as well. Uh, and, it, you know, when you look at the, the Advaita system, which is the Vedanta system, the, it says that consciousness is all that there is. Now let's use the, you know, use the metaphor of light to represent consciousness. The, uh, if there's only one thing, then darkness is not a thing. It's just a place where light is relatively absent. So if I want to enlighten some part of myself, I shine the light on there, which means what? I look and I own and I find the way to own without a sense of judgment, without the experience of shame and to this, you know, and, and without the, the sense of needing to hide it from, from you or from myself. But this is what I am. This is what it looks like in there. And it's perfectly human. And now what? And, uh, you know, I think that life is very much about just looking at those different places that we've pushed away from ourselves and finding out, and how can I be okay even with this? And how can I, you know, experience joy even with this? And how can I see myself as valuable and uh, worthy of life even with this? And the truth is, from the from the the place of spirit, how can you not? If if there's only one thing, then it, there's no part of this one thing that doesn't belong here. It, that that's an impossibility. From inside me, it doesn't look like that. It looks like ooh, that's ugly, and that's ugly, and that's ugly, and that's ugly, and I need to hide that, and I need to make sure no one sees that, and and oh, I'm broken there. No. Now and so then, you know, what do you do to? own those other parts of yourself. And that's, that's a, an ever-shifting uh, system. Like what modality is working today? Uh, the, the kind of therapy I'm doing right now, it wasn't even, they didn't even uh, come up with it until you know, sometime in the last 10 years. I could have used it 30 years ago, but it wasn't around. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I think that's a beautiful place to close. I, I love what you said there, which was that the darkness is just the place where the light hasn't shone yet. And I think it's a really beautiful invitation for anyone listening to acknowledge and reconcile that we all have those shadowy places, i.e. the place where the light hasn't shone and not to be scared of taking a good, long, cold, hard look at them <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. not using spirituality or meditation as an excuse to not look at them. Like I've got my system now. I need to, I can ignore the other things. It's actually the evolution is the, is the looking at all of it. So thank you so much. Yeah. What a delight. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks so much for listening to the Broadplay's High Grade Living Podcast. For more information on our interviewee, please see the show notes. For more information on the Broad Place, 
visit www.thebroadplace.com or hit us up on Instagram at thebroadplace. Our book, High Grade Living, can be purchased globally online or please ask any of your favorite book retailers to get your hands on a copy. Please remember we also have a free 30-day calendar that goes with the High Grade Living book that you can jump on and download for free from our website within the classroom. This will help you action and bring to life everything that's featured within the book. Best of luck.